Hello and welcome to another edition of Flag Hunters. In today's episode, we're uh, very grateful to have Ron Sisson on the podcast. Uh, Ron has notably started uh, his own golf teaching company called Real Swing Golf, and his methodology is based on uh, real acute club face awareness. Uh, and he has been doing that for the better part of three decades. And as you listen to the conversation, Ron has a very unique and fantastic way of explaining what the club head's doing, what it should be doing. And we talk a little bit biomechanics too, and a little about the swing motion. He is a teacher, of course. Um, but his main methodology is around club face awareness. So that's that's the the bulk of what we talk about. We do a little bit of storytelling, but it's fantastic. Ron uh, currently resides in Canada, is still there in the Vancouver area, and teaches primarily on Zoom. And um, all of his information I'll put in the show notes. But enjoy this conversation, and I apologize for any lag spikes. My internet was having a hard, hard, hard time that day, and Ian, my editor, uh, has done everything he could to clean everything up, but I didn't want to delete anything that Ron had to say because I thought everything he said was fantastic. Cheers. Hello and welcome to another great edition of Flag Hunters. Jesse Perryman here with Mr. Ron Sisson. Ron is uh, visiting us online, and he is from Vancouver Island, or currently lives in Vancouver Island, and has a great online teaching presence. And Ron, thank you so much for coming on, and I look forward to this, pal. Uh, pleasure to be here, Jesse, and I'm looking forward to it as well. So, Ron, uh, so where'd you, where did you get your start teaching? Well, let's go back to the very beginning and where I got my start in golf. So when I was a little kid, 10 years old, my dad took me to the golf course and he took his clubs, an old set, cut off the grips, hacked off a few inches. Then he put some skinnier grips on and he made them good and extra long because so, he knew that I would grow into them, right? So my nickname when I was in high school was Bone Man. I'm kind of one of those uh, ectomorphic body types, tall and skinny. Um, and I was really, really skinny. So imagine this little scrawny 10-year-old kid with these extra long clubs and I'm basically hanging onto this thing. It feels like a sledgehammer at the end of the <laughs> shaft. So the club slings itself over behind my head and then it whirls back around into the ball. And so essentially what happened was I began developing what I call the critical club head skills that are the, the heart of my teaching method. I call the real swing golf method. And the first skill is swing club head freely, fluidly, fast. So if your club head is swinging around you freely, there's no restricting tension. Um, the swing is fluid both backwards and forward and accelerates smoothly into impact. That's what I call a real swing. If, the, if any of those elements are missing, if there's tension, if there's jerkiness, if there's no speed or, no, or too much speed or not enough speed, then it's not a real true golf swing. So because I was skinny, I didn't have this, the adult strength to, to have tension in the swing. Even if I was tense, the club was so heavy for me, it just naturally swung freely. I couldn't do anything to stop it. And because I wasn't strong enough to, you know, wreck the transition and force the club forward, the club just had a natural smooth transition and then it 
gradually picked up speed like a roller coaster through the ball. So right off the bat, without knowing it, I had a real true golf swing, the club head swinging freely around me. Now, the second critical skill is striking the ball, strike ball with swinging club head. And there's a couple of asterisks on that that we're going to talk about a little bit later on. But basically, my brain, I'm not aware of it in any conscious sense, but my brain, as that club swings around me freely, is sensing this weighted object hurtling through the air toward the ball. And my job is to try to get the club head on the ball as accurately as I can. Now, when I'm 10, I'm going to miss it and top it and skull it and shank it like any beginner would, right? Now, of course, my dad would say stuff like, what? Oh, you lifted your head on that one. You bent your arm on that one. You're taking your eye off the ball. Now, I'm 10. Am I listening? No. No, I'm not listening. I'm basically, <laughs> I'm basically just feeling this weighted object whirling through the air. And over time, I instinctively, through a process that's called implicit motor learning, of course, I didn't know this at the time, my brain is instinctively becoming skillful at sensing the path of the club and using the distance depth perception information from my eyes, I'm just gradually swinging again and again and again until I start getting the club hit on the ball. And so eventually I learned to get decent contact in the center of the face. Now, of course, the ball is going to be going left and right, you know, fades and draws and hooks and slices. Through that same implicit learning process, my brain is becoming more sensitive to how my hands have to feel the, the release and rotation of the club face through the ball to get it to a relatively square position more or less consistently. So from the age of 10 to about the age 15, I did nothing but golf. So and I didn't have, a, didn't have any golf lessons. So everything that I learned about hitting the ball was just from feeling this weighted thing swing around me. So the swing was intact, the real swing as I describe it. And then I just became better and better at making contact between club and ball and getting the face to be relatively square. Now, after that, uh, grade 10-ish, I think I got a summer job. And then I didn't really do anything in golf after that because I was busy with summer jobs and so on and so forth. A uh, few years down the road, I go through college. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I took this athletic trainer thing and that petered out. And then when I was in my mid-20s in, in 1986, I got a job at an indoor golf school. And they advertised for a custom club uh builder and repair person. So I answered that ad and I was putting together component clubs and, you know, reshafting, regripping, refinishing wood heads. That was still the era of wooden wood heads at that point. And they were, they were, the teachers were really busy. So they said, well, this guy's got a pretty good swing. Let's get him teaching because they wanted to maximize their teaching revenue. Right. So I'd never taught golf before and didn't know what the heck I was doing. My training program was teach him the grip, teach him the stance, and then we'll kind of guide you along as you go. So it was just basically, they just pushed me right out there. And right off the bat, I'm going, okay, uh, <laughs> don't think I know what I'm doing here, but I'll do it anyway. So I just paired it along with what the other instructors were saying. So there were three brothers who ran this indoor golf school. It was called Allred's Golf School. They were in existence, um, I think, from 1974 when their father started it to 1994 when they uh, when the, the place closed. But what happened was the three brothers, two of them were more of the traditional, you grip like this, you set up like this, then you have to have a 90 degree shoulder turn, arm extended, wrist in a slightly cupped position, et cetera, et cetera, very position oriented teachers. But one of the brothers, his name was Vance, he had a kind of a different approach. And so I was teaching part-time, but also 
repairing clubs as well. Now, the situation of the Skull School, it was in a basement uh, in one of the downtown office um, structures. And they had 10-foot ceilings, but 8-foot partition walls. And so you could hear things through the golf school. And the, the club repair place was just two walls away from the main teaching studio. So I'd be working and putting clubs together and repairing clubs and listening to the teachers teach on the other side of the wall. And so Vance, uh, he would have people come in and they would uh, say to Vance, you know, there's something wrong with my golf swing. Now, what they meant by golf swing was, I don't think my shoulders turn enough. I think my wrists in the wrong position. I don't have enough weight shift, et cetera. And Vance would patiently listen to them. And then he would say, well, actually, you don't have a golf swing. So he would just (laughs) bluntly blurt out, well, you don't actually have a golf swing. And then Vance would go on to define what a golf swing was. And he said, a golf swing is where we create centrifugal force. And then we allow centrifugal force to hit the ball. So all the talk about the positioning of the body, that's not really the golf swing. The golf swing is what the club head is doing. So, and George... Uh, pardon me, um, Vance had just recently, recently bought George Knudsen's book, The Natural Golf Swing. And so he was reading through it as well. And he was nodding his head along with what George Knudsen talked about. Um, and one of the key things that I, that I picked up from that book was George's statement, you have to give up control to gain control. Yeah. So I would listen to Vance talk to people and say, the goal of the swing is to create speed. So you get it going and you get it faster and faster, as fast as you can through the ball. So I'm listening to this going, well, wait a minute, all my life long as I grew up around, you know, the golf culture, what does everybody say? Slow your swing down, just a nice, easy swing. So I'm listening to this going, this sounds different. Yeah. So gradually I began to parrot what Vance was saying. And so I would do the same thing with people. I would say to them, um, after they gave me their spiel about how all the mechanics of their swing was wrong, I'd say, well, actually you don't have a golf swing same kind of idea. I was just parroting Vance. Now, some people would actually get a little bit irate with this because they worked really hard on getting all their parts and positions into place. Sure. So eventually I started to temper it by saying, well, actually you don't have a real golf swing. So hence that's where the name of my company, Real Swing Golf was born. And then I would explain to them that a real golf swing is one, and I use the same terminology with Vance, Now, over a period of time, from probably the mid-80s when I started teaching to about the early 90s, again, I'm learning as I'm going. And what I found that with Vance, because he was so uh, focused on speed, the timing and tempo of people's swings would get so unbelievably quick, the transition would be all over the place and they would have trouble getting back to the ball. So although they had the speed part right, it didn't seem to work. And their swings were their swings because they're trying to create so much speed and didn't know how to do it efficiently or properly with, you know, relaxed hands and arms and using the body as the driver and letting the hands and arms swing freely around them. They would end up with these swings that were full of tension and the, and the fluidity just wasn't there. So gradually my main focus initially was get people swinging the club as fast as they possibly could. But then I had them learn to temper it by being relaxed and allowing the club to swing freely. And then I also began to talk about the fluidity of the swing. So eventually over time, the real swing, as I call it, evolved into those three critical elements, freely, no tension, fluidly, fluid rhythmic, uh, tempo driven swing, and fast, meaning accelerate the club to as much speed as you can possibly muster, presuming that you're doing it without any tension and with the natural flow of accelerating momentum rather than the sudden stab at the ball, which is why golfers, average golfers are often called hackers. Sure. So that's how the real swing was born. So 
you know, based based on on that with the real swing, does the swing gradually pick up speed through the strike and and continue just ripping through? Is it a gradual or is it um, is it um, you just kind of keep the speed consistent? Um, well, I think there's uh, there's a certain natural acceleration. It's, yeah. it's almost like a kid on a swing set, right? So if you picture a kid swinging backwards, there's going to be a transition. The momentum of the kid swinging backwards has to peter out just before the momentum of the swing goes forward, right? Yeah. And then if you just sit there and do nothing, the swing will just like a pendulum rock back and forth. But on a swing set, you can do the swing your legs back and then lean back, pull on the ropes and swing your legs out to create that accelerating momentum, right? Right. Gotcha. So that kind of acceleration is what we're looking for from the swing. Yeah. When the swing changes directions, like pushing a kid on a swing, we want to push and accelerate the club as much as we can. But if that kid changes directions and you, as soon as the direction shifts, you push just as hard as you possibly can right off the bat, what's going to happen to that kid? They're going to get whiplash and get knocked off the seat. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what you have to do when you make that transition, like pushing the kid on the swing, at first, as soon as the momentum shifts, your hand goes onto the small of the back. You don't push really hard all at once. You, you, you're basically using the momentum that's already there, and you're boosting it little by little by little until when they're just about to leave your hand, that's when you've reached the maximum push that you're going to give them, right? Yeah. So basically what you're trying to do is build your speed down to that impact point. Sure. And then past impact, you're just letting it freewheel around up into the finish. Gotcha. Well, I think, I think that's really, really interesting. Um, do you think, Ron, do you think that this has, if, if somebody were going to come to you for the first time and they know what you're teaching and, and they really are inspired, do you think that golf clubs should be a little bit heavier as a result of this? Or can you do this with anything? It's better to have clubs that are heavier okay. because what ends up happening is when the, when the weight of the club is heavy, <clears throat> your brain senses what the golf club is. A golf club is essentially a super lightweight stick with a little lightweight piece of rubber at one end of it. And this actually very heavy head at the other end of it. Well, I hand people a shaft and a grip with no head on it. One that's broken off at the head, for example. And I just hand it to them. They go, Whoa, because they, you know, they'll, they'll have to with their hands go, there's nothing there. So when you feel the weight of a golf club, that's fully, uh, all the components are there. There's some weight to it, but that weight is concentrated in the head. Right. So when, when you can feel the club head, then your brain has something to hit with. But the problem with golf is, uh, in, in fact, I want to quickly read you this email, <laughs> which kind of illustrates this, this story here. Um, this is Hi, Ron. Greeting from the UK. I stumbled on your YouTube videos. Uh, in truth, is a bit of a last resort. I've been pretty close to giving up the game. He said, I've studied it hard to the point of madness. Of course, I've read every book from Hogan and beyond. and completely fallen for the, it's all about the mechanics, all about the body mechanics story. He says, I'm 40 years old and you believe the experts, don't you? You had my first lesson about 15 years ago. It's been that long and I've been on my body mechanics journey. So basically what he's saying is just interject on his email here is I fell for the story that everybody says about golf. Completely ignore the club head. Don't pay any attention to it. And focus fully on your body parts. Get the grip right, get the setup right, get the posture right, get the ball position right. Now, when you swing, make sure every limb you have moves so you look like Tiger Woods or Adam Scott. If you do, guess what's going to happen? 
the club head is going to swing around you freely, fluidly, and fast. And it's going to whirl into the ball, make pinpoint precise contact on the face, and the face will square up because all your mechanics are right. Oh, it didn't work? Well, it's because you don't look like Tiger. Your body parts don't move in the exact mechanically prescribed way. That's your problem. So you got to do countless thousands of hours of, of muscle memory drills to get your body parts all in the right places. So continue on. He says, learning that way, nothing lasts long. So I always ended up back at the beginning again. I really didn't know what to do. How could I still be so inconsistent? How could I still not be able to play this game after all these years? And he says, I watched your video and then I watched it again. And you know what? In my whole entire golfing life, I had never given one thought to the club head. The one thing that makes contact with the ball, years and years of playing, practicing, reading, studying, club buying, club fitting, video watching, et cetera. And I had never thought to think where the club head was during my swing. <laughs> you wow. see, you and I, you and I as good players, you started when you were 12. I started when I was 10. We, and in our pre-podcast chat there, you talked about how you've had this, this really intuitive feel and sense with your hands about what to do with the club head and the club face, right? Yep. Well, we learn that instinctively when we're little kids, but most people who take up the game as an adult they don't get to learn that because, number one, they're strong enough to have a ton of tension in their hands, right. and so they don't feel the club head. One of the first things that I do with people when I'm teaching them is I talk about grip pressure. So I have them point their finger at me, and then I grip their finger like I'm holding onto a golf club. And so I hold it with a grip pressure. For those listening on, on, the, on the podcast, or think of a grip pressure scale as zero, you're asleep, <laughs> and tight as you could possibly clench your hands, Right. Yeah. So most people that I've found, their grip pressure is at least seven, and a lot of people in the eight, nine, and then there's the odd one in the 10 range. Okay. Right. So what I do with people is I have them hold a golf club and squeeze it at eight, nine, or 10, right? Yeah. And I say, okay, now just hold it out in front of you and level with the ground. Now move it smoothly up and down with really tight hands. I say, well, what do you feel? I say, what does the club feel like? And I say, well, it feels like a big, long iron stick. The grip feels heavy. The shaft feels heavy. The head feels heavy. Everything feels heavy. My arms feel heavy. So from shoulders to club head, there's just this big mass of iron. It all feels heavy. Right. So as a result of that, can I tell differences in in the parts of things? Can I tell where the grip is, where the shaft is, where the head is, et cetera? No, because it all feels like one heavy mass. So then I say, okay, so let's grip down to about two and a half or three. So that means your hands will fully enclose on the handle a very light, gentle squeeze so there's good contact between grip and skin or leather over your gloves so it's not going to slide through your fingers while you swing. Right. Now, maintaining that soft grip pressure, do the same thing where you move the club up and down. Now, what do you feel? Well, now you feel what the golf club is. My arms are light, the grip is light, shaft is light, and out of the end, I feel a bobbing weight. Right. That's the club head. Right. Now you can feel it. Then when I get people swinging, that club head weight they feel begins to take on the shape of what I call the heavy circle. So essentially, I'm going to get up and do a swing here in my little garage studio. So I can feel the weight of the club head. And when I swing it around me, that weight then begins to take on the feel of this weight carving this tilted plane orbit around me. Sure. And so when I'm hitting a golf ball, essentially, my brain is focused on the weight, feeling the arc it cuts through the air. I see where the ball is, and I just try to pass it as accurately through the ball as I can. And that's how I learned how to golf. That's how you learned how to golf. By having a a complete um, intuitive sense of feel and awareness for the club head. And we sense the path that it was on to get the club head on the ball. 
And then over time, we also developed the higher awareness of club face awareness, not just club head awareness, so that we could feel the release of the club to get it to square up, you know, relatively square so that we could hit it relatively straight with minimal curve, right? Right. And the vast majority of professional golfers you see on TV, anybody who gets really, really good at it, they generally start when they're very, very young. Right. And they instinctively develop these club head skills, the swinging skills, swing club head, free fluid fast, and then the striking skills, strike ball with swing club head, by sensing the weight of the club for the path to make contact, and then the release of the club face uh, and its rotation through the ball to get the club relatively square. Yeah, that makes 100% sense, Ron. And, and where I've got a bone to pick with, with today's current equipment is that I think it's just, they're just, it's just way too light. And, um, and I think that a lot of people would be better off putting some lead tape on those things. And, and it's interesting that everybody who picks up my clubs, they're very heavy. They're at about D seven. My irons are at about D seven right now. Yeah. And it's not because of anything, a strength, anything or any of that. This is a hundred percent to make sure that I have club face awareness. And and quite frankly, everybody who picks up my golf club say they feel good. First they feel heavy and then they feel really good. Um, and, and I think important factor in what you're trying to say with developing this awareness and developing an innate sense of how to accelerate the golf club. Well, picture it like this. Imagine taking an ax that just has a handle with no head on it, right? If you're going to split a block of wood with an axe, right. you've got to sense and feel where the head of the axe is. You do. If, you, if you've got a lightweight head on the, axe, on the axe handle, how do you guide that weight and the centrifugal force that you create so it makes an accurate strike on the block, right? That's right. why it's important to be able to sense and feel your club head. Now, most golfers, because they're so tight on the club, they can't feel the club at all. Right. And so then they inevitably strike inaccurately. And then the blame is on what? Oh, uh, lost your spine angle on that one. That's why sure, you sculled it. Sure. Your head must have moved on that one. Could be your yeah. arms bending. So again, it takes it away from a, a club head skill focus onto a, well, it seems obvious, doesn't it? Because the ball is stationary. If yeah. you set up to a certain distance to the ball, and your arms straight and your knees are bent and your head is in a certain position. Well, if your head doesn't move and your arms stay straight and your knees stay bent and then you swing, it should come right back to the same point exactly every time, right? Sure. Yeah. Makes sense, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Ron, the, go, so go, ahead. go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. And Finish that's your the, thought. That's the. Yeah, that's the Joe average driving range advice that everybody gets, right? Yeah. Keep your head yeah. down, keep your arms straight, keep your knees bent, keep your eye on the ball. Oh, it didn't work? Well, you must have lifted your head, <laughs> bent your arms, straightened your knees, and looked up too soon. <laughs> yeah, my, my all-time favorite is something that you said before was, uh, you know, slow it down. You're too quick. Slow it down. That's that's my all-time favorite one. And um, But, okay, so you know, what I was going to ask you is how do you get a student to develop this sense of club face awareness? Well, the first thing that I have to do with most students is I have to, my lesson kind of goes in, in, in parts when I'm teaching people. So the first part, I teach them what I call the master principle. In fact, we can, we can even do the master principle right now. Now your podcast listeners are not going to see this, but what I want you to do is I want you to stand up. Okay. Okay. I'm going to teach you the master principle right now. All right. So what I want you to do. So we're both standing. We're looking at each other on the webcam here. Okay. So, so here's the first move for the master principle. So you take your left arm and you put it kind of 90 degrees across your body here like this. 
Okay, excellent. All right, now you want to take your right arm and you want to bring it up above and put it in under the elbow here. Okay, you got that? Yep. Okay, now your other hand on the other, the, the opposite hand, now you want to bring that up and under and now you're in a position to be skeptical of everything I'm about to say. <laughs> got it. So, so basically, have a seat again. <laughs> what I did was I used the master principle to get you into a position where, um, <laughs> where you're standing there with your arms folded. So this is the master principle. Your body will obey the instructions from your brain, period, full stop, in a story. Yeah. So we just did an example of that. When I asked you to stand up, put this arm here, put this arm here, put your arms in. So you ended up in a folded arm position. You didn't know what I was asking you to do, right? Right. But your body just followed the instructions it was told to do. It doesn't know or care what it's being told to do. It just does what it's told to do. Sure. So if you're a golfer and you have correct ideas and correct information in your head, what will your body attempt to carry out? Those, those correct commands. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Now, what if you have incorrect ideas in your head? It's going to carry that out as well. With all the ensuing not so great results. That's right. So the thing that holds people back is they fall victim to what I call mechanical golfer syndrome. So I'm, I'm more convinced of this now than I ever have been. And I always state this. The action of striking golf ball is now and always has been nothing more than a relatively simple action of human hand-eye coordination. That's all it has ever been. Right. Yeah. yeah. But because the ball is stationary, it lends itself into this hyper focus on the mechanical details of the body. When a tennis player, for example, in the U.S. Open takes a swipe at a ball and hits it off the top edge of the racket and goes into the crowd, what happens next? Do we start up the the uh, the Konica BizHub slow motion camera and analyze every movement that that player did to hit the ball off the edge of the racket? Probably not. <laughs> oh, no, we just go, whoops, you missed it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that coordination, even at that level, isn't perfect every time. Right, right, right. So, but in golf, because the ball isn't moving, it lends itself to this idea that golf is about the body parts and the mechanical positions of the body parts, right? Yeah. And so this premise is based on three, three ideas. First, there is a biomechanically correct swing. Tiger Woods has it. You don't. There's your problem. Um, if you hit the ball improperly, there's got to be a limb somewhere that we can blame. So right. if you hit one dead flush one time and then you, you thin or skull the next one, well, then obviously some part of you, the biomechanical golf machine, has broken down. And then the third premise is muscle memory. If you practice the biomechanically correct swing a bazillion times, you will develop the muscle memory necessary to have that ball striking nirvana, perfect, consistent ball striking, just like Ben Hogan, right? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, all three of those ideas have always been false. Yeah. They've never been true. Yeah. So let's start with um, premise number one. In order to hit the ball well, you have to have a biomechanically sound swing. Okay. Uh, name me the person who has two scores under 50 in professional golf. <laughs> Pardon me, not under 50. I'm sorry, I, I misspoke. Not under 50, in the 50s. Who has two scores in the 60s? Uh, well, pardon me. Sorry, let me. <laughs> you might have to edit this part, or, or no, I don't care. You're, you're good. But basically, uh, who has broken 60 twice? There's been a handful of players who've broken 60. One player has done it twice. Uh, is it Mo? Did Mo break it yep. twice? 
Uh, Mo shot 59, uh, I, I believe, at least at least once. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't him. Um, I'm at a loss. Quick Fire. answer, Jim Furyk. Yeah, Furyk. That's right. Jim Furyk yeah. shot 59 in 2013. Yeah. And then in 2016, he had a putt for a 57 that grazed the edge. Yeah. And broke his own record and shot 58. Now, if you go and look at any of the top 10 in the world, and you go down the list of the official golf world rankings, and you look at them, and then you think about their swing. And I don't even have the list up currently. But basically, you're going to have maybe two or three that have what we would call technically sound swings. And then you're going to have one or two that are like really bizarre. And then the rest are going to have at least one or two so-called flaws in their swing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, for example, who's current world number one? Scotty Scheffler. Yeah. Right. He's got that huge forward lean, uh, reverse C move. His legs bow out. His feet slip all over the place. This is the current number one player in the world. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. His swing is nothing to marvel at. Who was the previous world number one before Scheffler took over? Was it Rory? Did did Rory get back up, up there? Uh, no. John Rom. Oh, John Rom. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you got John Rom, who's got this very, super quick tempo to his swing, right? And, and short. Very short swing. Very short. He's got his wrist is, is unbelievably cupped. The yeah. club is kind of laid off in that short little backswing. He stands really, really close to the ball. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So is his swing technically sound? No. So look at both names in the past. Uh, Lee Trevino, does, did his swing look like Adam Scott? No. Nope. Mo Norman, did his swing look like Adam Scott? Nope. No. Mo Watson, does his swing look like Adam Scott? Not even nope. close. Former world number one, Dustin Johnson, does his swing look like technically sound? Nope. Not Justin really. Justin Thomas. Yeah. Justin Thomas, does his swing look technically sound? Right. So if you have a scientific premise, the swing must be technically sound in order to, to be consistent, right? With any scientific premise, the premise has to hold up so that it's largely true and maybe one or two uh, anomalies here and there. But in golf, everybody has differences in how their bodies move while they swing. You can recognize people just by the movements of their body while they swing, right? Yeah. I mean, you know it when you're watching golf broadcasts. You know, you may, they may not bring up the name of the person right off the bat, but as soon as you see them, you can tell by their setup and their look and then the swing who it is, right? Right. Yeah, definitely. So every, everybody's going to have a unique golf swing. And by golf swing, well, I'm talking about the way most people think of a golf swing in terms of the biomechanical movements while you're swinging. Because to me, the golf swing is what the club does, not the movements that you go through while you do that. Sure. Right? Sure. So, and this is my message to Joe Average Golfer. You don't need to look like somebody else. In fact, I don't fix technical flaws that people have unless I see it's causing a problem. Right. So, so for example, Dustin Johnson, I've got this little tiny club. I've got a, uh, for, the, for your podcast listeners, I've got this little magnet on it, which shows the club face. Yeah. So you, you know that Dustin Johnson, when he swings back, he basically, as he starts with a very strong grip, and then yeah. as he swings back, he turns the club face under and hoods his wrist incredibly. Yep. So basically, by the time he gets back to the top of the backswing, if you spun that around and had that as a dress, where would, the club, where would his club face be pointing? Just dead basically, shot. Basically, dead shot almost at his, his target side foot. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Dustin Johnson is asked about why he does this bold wrist thing. And he said, well, when I was a kid, I thought 
if I allow the club to fan open, well, then it's going to have trouble getting back to square. So I twisted my wrists on purpose to keep it like it's square facing at the target. How about that? Right. And so over time, when he was a little kid, his brain instinctively readjusted on the downswing so that it would come back relatively square. Then he hits that big power fade, right? Yep. So would it be wise to tell Dustin, you know, that bowed wrist and that really shut club face, that's a huge major technical flaw. You're going to be really inconsistent if you do that. Would it be wise to attempt to, quote, fix Dustin Johnson? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's, oh, yeah. there's no need to fix Dustin Johnson. Now, let's say I've got a brand new beginner. They do the same thing, especially women for some reason, because there's an instinct that I call the steering instinct, whereas the, as the player is swinging the club back, their brain instinctively thinks, like Dustin did when he was a kid, I don't want the face to open because it opens naturally just with the course of the swing, right? Right. So I have beginners do this where they'll buckle their wrist because their brain is think into a really bold position because their brain is thinking they got to keep the club face oriented square. So for those golfers, if they swing like that, they do end up hitting a lot of hooks. Yeah. So for some players, especially beginners, I need to teach them to have to allow the face to open naturally and then to hinge the wrist in kind of like a fishing line throwing motion, right? Right. So what I'll do with them is I'll take them from, I'll let them swing back their swing and they end up in that buckled bowed wrist position. I'm going to say, would you ever throw a fishing line like that? Does that feel comfortable? And they go, no, it feels awful. So right. then I do a few times where I get them to hinge properly. And then I show them once they're in that position, I'll take them from the, turn them around put the club down and the face is oriented properly facing at the target. Whereas when they let them do their buckled wrist thing, I turn them around, put the club down. I go, Whoa, where's that club face pointing? Right? Right. So then they start to get the feel and the sense of, okay, now I understand why my wrist has to be in that position rather than this position. So in some instances, technical flaws, you do need to look at it and fix it. If it's affecting their ability to get the club head on the ball and to hit it properly. Right. But otherwise, I just let people have their technical flaws if it's not affecting anything in terms of their swing and the strike of the ball. Well, I think that's a that's a vast uh, difference from most methodologies, Ron, because I, I, I have this kind of inside joke. There we go. Okay. So um, basically, uh, can you hear me okay, Ron? Yeah, I can hear you okay. And I'll start a little bit there. I don't know when we, uh, when we left off in the... Okay, so there's an inside joke, uh, Ron, basically with some of my other teachers, teacher friends, that the best the best coaching job is Mr. Furick, Jim Furick's dad, <laughs> uh, you know, or anybody who didn't interfere with Dustin Johnson's uh, natural way of swinging the golf club. Uh, you know, I got to think of who else. I mean, Justin Thomas's dad is a PGA pro. Yeah. I mean, those <laughs> are some the, some of the best teachers are the ones that... <laughs> Didn't really say a whole heck of a lot, you know. Didn't get in. Yeah, they're, they're probably working with those. They're probably working with those types of players more so on just you know short game, being sharp mentally, making good course management decisions, all that sort of stuff. Interesting thing about Justin Thomas, um, you know, he's this little guy. He just bombs it way out there. Yeah. And so they did this sports science kind of video on him about okay, so how does he generate all this power? So he's going through this thing. He's getting all hooked up and wired up. Et cetera, et cetera. At the end of it, he makes this comment, wow, it's really neat to know how I do it. I've always just been someone who thinks 
uh, see ball, hit ball. Right. Now, this is one of the top players in the world, FedEx Cup champion, two-time major champion. He doesn't think anything about the details and the movements of his swing, right? That's amazing. So you see, at the professional level, um, most of these guys don't really think about their golf swing. They, like you and I, developed this club head sense and awareness when they were little kids to make precise contact and to get the club to make the ball do what they wanted it to do. And so, in actual fact, most people and most golf instructors think that all the PGA Tour pros have got launch monitors and videos, and they're looking at the swing and analyzing every detail and mechanics of the swing. Nothing could be further from the truth. Check out this quote that I've got from uh, Padraig Harrington. I got this from, uh, I think, uh, the Golf Channel website. Now, Padraig Harrington is is the kind of uh, that really outgoing sort of guy, and he loves to go up and down the range and chit-chat with people and talk to them all the time. And Padraig has always been of the mindset of let's tinker with my mechanics, right? So sure. there's a lot of pros. There's some pros who do like to think about the details of how my body moves and how's this going to affect where the ball is going to go, et cetera, et cetera. So Padraig's kind of of that tinkering mindset. So <laughs> here's, here's what I got from the website. Padraig Harrington has, be, has been accused of sometimes tinkering his way out of top form. And then Padraig says this, quote, you will find more PGA Tour pros are non-tinkerers than are tinkerers. There are very few that actually tinker. There are probably, listen to this, 10 of us, and the rest are much more of the mindset of not really thinking too much about their game whatsoever. So if you're looking for a character trait to make it as a professional, the guy who doesn't think too much has got better odds. Wow. That's coming from one of the best, too. You know, argue, argue, arguably the best 50 year old plus in the world. Right exactly. Now. And he, um, he knows all these guys, right? Yeah. So he's talking with them all the time and he wants to get into this. Let's discuss the angular momentum of the blah, 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 some mechanical thing. And the guys look at him and go, well, uh, uh, I don't know. I just hit the ball. <laughs> So, right? so he's got nobody to talk to. He's, he's the only found 10 other guys on the tour who want to shoot the crap about all the mechanics of the swing. Right. Right. Why, why do you so, think, why do you think that is right? Why do you think that we as kind of a golf society have become uh, just so ingratiated in mechanics? Because it's on the surface of it, it seems to make sense. Right? Okay. Um, despite the fact that there's so many um, contraindications about, you know, you have to be in position X at impact, right? right? I remember back when I was teaching in the 80s, they had this golf magazine foldout and it had about 50 different players at impact. Yeah, I remember right? that. Yeah. And so you'd see, um, I remember Tom Kite, hips very rotated at impact. Yeah. Jack Nicholas, about half that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if you look at Mo Norman, for example, He's pretty much facing the ball at impact. Doesn't look much much different than his address. His hips right. hardly move. Right. right. Yeah. So the thing that people don't understand is what actually happens when a golf club hits a ball. So when the golf club starts down at the ball, then it's going to go on a journey. It's going to curve away from the target line, go up around behind your head, over your shoulder, over your right shoulder if you're right-handed, right? Yeah. Then it's going to retake that journey back to the ball. And there's another thing. You have to be on plane. Well, ask Jim Furyk if he, he's concerned about his backswing, backswing plane mirroring his downswing plane, right? He doesn't give a crap. No. Nope. So, but that aside, 
the club is going to arc back to the ball. Then it's going to continue on its arc and go over your other shoulder on the other side and finish. So if you map out the distance that that club head travels, it goes about 35 to 40 feet as it makes that huge circular, more or less circular journey around you, right? Yeah. Relative to the target line, because the swing is not a vertical straight up and down Ferris wheel circle, the club head never is on the target line, except when you address it. Yeah. It curves away as it goes back, curves back out to meet the ball at the outer apex of its arc at impact, then curves away going through. So no, the club does not move straight along the target line for any extended period of time. The laws of physics will not allow that. How does a club head whirling at that speed with the, the amount of weight and pull force that it has through centrifugal force curve out to the target line, say a foot before the ball, make a kink and go straight for a while, then stop going straight and then go back to curving at 100 miles an hour. Yeah. The laws of physics don't allow it. So the swing is curving as it goes through the ball. Sure. Right. Yeah. The face of the club starts off square and then immediately as you swing back, it opens, it flares open naturally just as as it follows the, the path of the swing. Halfway to impact, it's facing 90 degrees to the right of where you're going to send it. Yeah. Then in a split second from waist high on the downswing to impact, the face is going to rotate up uh, 90 degrees to end up being hopefully close to square. Yeah. And as it goes through and past impact, it's going to rotate another 90 degrees. So it's facing uh, 90 degrees left of target. Once you get uh, to waist high on the, on the through swing, right? Yeah. So from waist high to waist high, the face does a full 180 degrees of rotation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, with this huge curving arc, rotating face happening, uh, oh, speed, acceleration. Uh, Rory, from top of the swing down to impact, 239 milliseconds. Yeah, that's pretty fast. Right? Yeah. That's about five times faster than a top fuel dragster can accelerate. Right. And even Joe Average can accelerate about three times faster than a top fuel dragster. Right. Now, here's what you got to do. As it makes this huge journey in a curving arc with a rapidly rotating face, uh, rotating 180 degrees faster than you can blink. All you got to do to get a good shot is to hit it dead on the center of the club face, right? Yeah. Now, how far away from the center can you get and still get a reasonably decent shot? So what I do with people when I'm teaching them is I hold the club face out in front of them like this, and then I hold up a nickel, and then I hold it like this so that you're looking at the circumference of the nickel. Yep. Then I pull the rug out front of them, and I say, you got to be accurate to within the thickness of a nickel. So I turn it sideways so they're looking at the thin edge of it. Right. That's a sixteenth of an inch. As a good player, you know that when you hit it two lines thin, you've chosen just the right club to clear the water, right? Yeah. This is presuming a dead-on accurate strike. Right. You catch it two lines thin, what happens? Well, you're not going to – yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Not much margin. Not much margin. It's you know the, the amount of precision required for the for what you want that tight percussive impact sound feels powerful effortless feels like you didn't even do anything yeah that's dead on the the nuts of center or within the sixteenth of an inch when you get to an eighth of an inch now you're in trouble yeah. I have a, I have a quote from Jack Nicholas um, I picked up years ago I don't even remember where I where I had it now but Jack like most people went up and down in his career he had peaks and slumps and so on and so forth. So he's sure. in a slump and he came out of the slump. And so somebody in the press asked him and said, Jack, we, we noticed you're playing better. What are you doing differently? Jack said, I'm hitting the ball one line higher on the club face. 
And of course, the press laughed laughed about that. Yeah. They thought he was joking. No, he's not. He's dead serious. Yeah, no, he's not. Because that one-eighth of a difference is the difference between hitting a 25, 30-foot birdie putt and a five-foot birdie putt. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So that's the precision that's required in order to get that good, um, precise strike. Now, here's some interesting things that people don't know. Most people don't know about impact. So the club face has to be square at impact, right? Yeah, somewhat. Ah, wrong. The club face actually has to be square at the height of the compression stage of impact. Okay, so what does that mean? So here's what they've learned with all the high-speed uh, technology that they've got in the last you know, 10, 20 years. So when a club meets a ball, as the club head comes into the ball, there's what's called initial impact. This is when the very outer surface of the, the, club, the club face has just barely touched the outer surface of the skin of the ball. That's the initial part of impact. Okay. Then what happens next is the force of impact causes the ball to squish. And you see it when you look at super slow motion. You see a driver hit a ball and the ball presses and looks like an egg on the face. Right, right. right. Okay? So for about a quarter of an inch, the front part of the ball doesn't move as the ball is squished with the force of impact, right? Okay. So what they found is, is that at initial impact, the club face has to be about a quarter of a degree open. Gotcha. Then in that quarter of an inch or so between initial impact and the height of compression, the club rotates from a quarter open to square. Then in the next quarter of an inch, the ball is leaving the face. This is called the separation stage of impact. So the club and the ball are together, moving along with each other for about a half an inch, a bit more than a half an inch. And so at initial impact, the club has to be a quarter degree open. Then it squares up to the height of compression stage. And then as the ball is leaving the face, it's starting to rotate closed about a quarter degree. Gotcha. So now most people don't know that. And the funny thing is, I remember reading this. So then the... Uh, uh, one of the teaching entities said, well, we got to teach people that they got to have their club a quarter of a degree open at, at, at a dress. <laughs> you see? <laughs> right. You see, all this amazing physics stuff is happening in the background. And in order to develop the ability to get that club head on the ball and even know that it has to be a quarter of a degree open at that very initial stage when the club is impacting, just barely meeting the outer surface of the ball, that's not anything that you're going to know in any conscious way. Right. Your brain will learn that instinctively in the background yeah. through this process called implicit motor skill learning. Sure. And that's why um, Fred Green uh, does this uh, Golf Smarter podcast. And he had a teacher. He's just an average golfer, and he's been doing this since 2005, very popular podcast. And um, he asked a teacher once, said, what do you got to do to get really, really good at golf? And the teacher said, start when you're six. Mm. And so basically what he's saying is, that the vast majority of the really good golfers get good because they start when they're six. Sure. And their brain instinctively learns to feel a real true swing because any motor movement skill that we learn, we learn it not by knowing the details of it. We learn it through the way our brain develops motor coordination skills. Sure. If you think, if you think about it, life is all day long, every day, hand-eye coordination. Yeah. For example, Absolutely. When, you, when you move your trackpad or your mouse to to select something on the on the menu, uh, that's hand-eye coordination. When I reach to grab a drink of water here, because I'm getting a little park, and put it up to my lips and drink, I had to glance over to see where the cup was. Then I had to extend my fingers 
and then contract my muscles in my forearm to grab the cup, right? Now, if I learned how to do that the way people are taught golf, I'd need to know the Latin names of all the various muscles in my forearms to extend and release my hand to pick up the cup, right? Sure. But the fact of the matter is, from the time you're a little infant, your brain works in what's called an external focus of what you want to do. So you have a goal, something you want to accomplish, right? So your brain says, I want to walk across the room, open the fridge, grab the pop can, pop the pop. Yeah. That's all your conscious mind is doing. Sure. In the background, your subconscious will take care of the trillions of motor movement calculations to use the right muscles in the right way to walk, open the fridge, open the pop can, put it up to your lips and drink, right? Yeah, yeah. You're not aware of any of the details of internally about what your body's doing because you're totally focused on the task. And in the background, the subconscious takes care of all the motor movement details. That's how golf actually works. But golf instruction does it backwards and says, you need to be consciously aware of all the motor movement details. And then all of this incredible 35 foot journey around you in blazing velocity, strike with a 16th of an inch precision or better, get the face perfectly square as it does 180 faster than you can blink. That just all automatically happens if you get the mechanics right. Right. So you see good players are better players who have the club head skill to swing and strike with precision and accuracy. We develop that instinctively when we're little kids. Then we just take that for granted. And then we might work with a mechanics teacher to, to fine tune this to that here or there. Sure. So for example, in my life, because I was skinny, when I, when I used to swing, I'd sort of sling my arms up because the club was really heavy. Yeah. I would do, uh, my left shoulder would kind of come out of its socket. My arm would, up against my neck as I tried to swing the club up over over my shoulder, right? Yeah, right. So in that period in the 80s, Jimmy Ballard was, um, that was sort of his time. And he talks about connection where the, the, um, the target side shoulder and the arm has to stay connected rather than the shoulder shrugging when you swing back, it stays right. down and you swing under. Sure. So what, I, what ended up happening with me was I started thinking about that and I began to work on that little technical detail. And what that did was it flattened my swing a fair bit and it felt pretty good doing it. So what ended up happening was I start working on this particular mechanical detail and I'm starting to hit the ball pretty good doing it. So I'm thinking, well, that's probably what's happening is, and I don't really know. I think it basically got my path a little bit better, um, a little more shallow into the ball rather than a steep attack on it, which I used to have because I was a little more upright. Yeah. So, and it seems interesting because most of the really great ball strikers tend to have flatter swings, right? Yeah. Norman flat, Ben Hogan flat, so yeah. on and so forth. So I started hitting the ball pretty good doing this. So I thought, well, this is the magic secret. Right. All I got to do is keep that shoulder down, swing back, pin my bicep against my chest muscle, and just right. hold that and go through the ball. Yeah. So one day after working at the golf school, we went out to play on a Saturday afternoon. And I had this one swing thought, this one mechanical swing thought. And basically I was just ripping the ball and hitting everything on a rope right at the target. And I was like two under after 16 holes before it got dark and we had to quit. So I thought this is the secret, but that nice. didn't happen. <laughs> a few days later, <laughs> that magic is gone. Yeah. Now, oh, yeah. knowing, what I, knowing what I know now from a mental standpoint, 
because I was so confident in this particular thing, I didn't look up and see, oh, there's water there, there's this here, right? Yeah. The mental aspect of the game has such a huge effect. Yeah. As we just as we just saw yesterday with Scotty Scheffler kind of stumbling down the stretch and Rory being able to stay strong and, and have a good round and overtake him, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in fact in his in his press conference he said on some of his putts, he misread one putt and then he started to question his read on some of the other putts. You cannot stand over a putt and question, I don't know, is this the right read or not? Yeah, that you're dead. Yeah. You're absolutely and dead. Unfortunately unfortunately for Scotty, it prevailed that uh, he stumbled and Rory took advantage of his stumble. Um, but basically, because I was so mentally locked into, all I got to do is this one move, I swung just freewheeling through the ball. Yeah. So my swinging skill, the freedom, the fluidity, uh, the acceleration through the ball, there was no holding back on my swing. And so I was just flushing every shot. And because my flow and my rhythm and my timing, my swing were so good, that's what led to the very accurate ball striking as well. That's interesting. That's that's really interesting. And also, too, I wanted to comment on, you know, we're talking about mechanics and we're talking about, uh, you know, Scotty Scheffler is a really good player. He's the best player in the world. He's had an incredible year. Incredible yeah. year. Four wins, wins the Masters, uh, had, great, had a great major record. He, he played very, very well this year. I think he, I mean, if he played bad, he was 20th or something like that. Yeah. Even at the highest level, the highest level, as much golf as he gets to play, which is exponentially more than most of us, with, with everything to his advantage, he's still human and he still questions himself from time to time. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's remarkable. What other game that we could, that we know of where, I mean, we're going to give a quarterback a hall pass a lot for throwing an interception. Uh, you know, we'll we'll give uh, somebody a hall pass for missing a pitch and hitting a home run. We'll give a, we'll give a goalie in hockey a hall pass for for missing a a puck. But in golf, I mean, we don't give ourselves any hall passes for for misses or anything like that. I mean, it's just crazy. Best player in the yeah. world in a press conference admits that he misread a putt and he had doubts. So th this is the best player in the world, and I don't know where the majority of us get off with calling ourselves every name under the book if we hit it in the rough or hit it in the trees or we miss a three-footer. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the fact is these guys are human. Yeah. And so they're going to make mental mistakes as well. And, you know, you'll hear the old saying, golf is 90% mental. Um, I think that's patently false. I think it's much closer to 98% mental yeah. because of the fact that what, as, as I described earlier about the path that that club swings on the precision required for contact, the squareness of the face going through the ball and so on and so forth. Any thought that you have in your head that isn't focused on making the best swing you can striking it as precisely as you can feeling what you got to do with that face to create the ball flight that you want. If you have any other thought roaming around in your head while you're trying to do that, that's going to mess up that tiny fraction of a degree or that tiny little difference in the strike between club head and ball. And there goes your shot. And this, I think is why tiger was as good as he was, was because he had that ability to know that when I'm hitting a golf shot, there is nothing else going on in the world than me hitting this golf shot. He gets so entranced in the execution process of hitting his shot that nothing else enters his world. And if something else does enter his world, 
he'll stop immediately and reset himself and go again, right? There's a video on YouTube of uh, Tiger was one of the early rounds in the Masters, and he's hitting a three wood off the off the tee, and he gets you know he starts his transition and he starts down. He's about halfway down, and then he just puts on the brakes and pulls the club up over the ball and 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 resets himself. Yeah, because as you'll see on the video, the shadow of a bird flying up above went right past his feet in his peripheral vision. So yeah. he's on his way down. This shadow goes ripping across his eye line. And then he pulls up mid-swing and stops. Because basically, Tiger knows, if I hit the ball and my brain goes from, okay, feel what I want to hit for the shot to, what the crap was that? Yeah. He knows the shot's done. Yeah. And it could affect his tournament, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's incredible next-level awareness right there. Incredible. Jedi Master awareness. So, you, you know, I want people that are listening to this to really think about what Ron's saying. Ron's one of the best teachers in the world. And, and although mechanics, in my opinion, are important, that's not the story. That's, that's not even close to the story. And, uh, you know, I wanted to reference a couple of golf swings that, that you mentioned that you, you would never, I love using this analogy. If you go to a drive, you go to a PGA Tour driving range and you see Adam Scott, who visually has this incredible golf swing. He has, him and Rory have these aesthetically very pleasing golf swings. Man, they connect all the dots. They're fit. They 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 swing rhythm, rhythmically. Their golf swing optically looks incredible. And they hit the ball amazingly well. So if you have, if you have Adam Scott on the range and next to Jim Furyk, <laughs> You, you, you would never guess in a million years he's going to have a better career. Yeah. I mean, it's just remarkable to me, you know, how much of that, when you say that, and when we look at that and we, we, we study that example, how much of that's mental, how much of it's putting, how much, how much of it is having the desire to get the ball in the hole. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, golf is so multifaceted. You look at someone like George Newton, right? Yeah. Um, you look, at your top, you look at your top three ball strikers of all time. You got Mo Norman, Ben Hogan, George Knudsen, right? Yeah. yeah. And George Knudsen should have won just about every golf tournament he ever entered. But he got the nickname from Jack Nicholas, the man with the million-dollar golf swing and the 10-cent putter. Yep. George was so accurate hitting the ball. He was asked in the press once, George, what's your biggest fear on the golf course? His answer was hitting the flagstick. He hated it when he hit the flagstick because he hit them on a semi-regular basis, right? Yeah. Every two or three weeks, he hits another flagstick. Yeah. And for George, that, that was devastating because you know what happens when a club hits the flagstick, like what happened to Tiger at the Masters a few years ago where he hits the flag on 15 and it spins back into the water. Right. <laughs> right. Right. George had to hit the ball close to the hole because he was useless at putting, which is yeah. why Jack nicknamed him the man with the million-dollar golf swing and the 10-cent putter. Right. And in his book, George described how you had a seven-week stretch of golf where he said, I should have won every tournament if I could have made some putts. He said on the, on the two weeks in the seven-week stretch where I won back-to-back, he said, I hit the ball so close to the hole, I couldn't miss the putt. That's next-level mastery right there. Yeah, but you see, that's why golf is so multifaceted. Yeah. Because you, be, you can have the picture-perfect, technically sound swing and hit the ball really well. But if you suck at putting, like George did, <laughs> you're just you're going to win eight times instead of eighty times. Right, 
Right. Everybody who watched George Newton hit the ball, Jack Nicklaus included, they all they all gushed about what he was as a ball striker. Yeah. But from a mental standpoint, what kicked him off the tour was he he played golf in fear all the time. Yeah. Because um, golf, the competition just totally drained him, and he got into he, he became an alcoholic basically. And so, whereas a George Newton will play a tournament in dread and fear, Jack Nicklaus and Rory and, and Tiger and all these types, they absolutely love the competition aspect of it. Yeah. In fact, Jack says, after I wasn't able to compete anymore, I really don't golf. Because that was Jack's thrill of golf, was the competition. Right. And putting himself up against the best and seeing if he could pull out his best stuff, which he did, obviously, is, uh, on a very regular basis. So golf is a combination of you have to have long shot skill. You got to be able to make contact with, got to be able to hit the ball and get up and down when you need to, which you were very good at, as we discussed earlier. You got to have mental game skill. You've got to have your, your mind screwed on straight so that when you're hitting a golf shot, that's all that you're doing. Yeah. Right? yeah. And then of course, nowadays you've got the fitness and diet component, which a lot of the top players are doing. So they absolutely max out their body. So when you combine all of those elements, then you get somebody like a Rory McIlroy, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, Adam Scott, he's got the swing. Um, mental aspect, I don't know because I haven't read enough about that. Putting, very streaky. Yeah, right? yeah, very streaky. But um, so, so, Ron, I mean, this is, this is just great. I, 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 it always boggles my mind that, you know, of all of the, of the great teachers like yourself that I've talked to, who its job, your job is to teach people how to swing the golf club better. It's just remarkable to me that you, it, the conversation always goes back to, you know, how the, the mental aspect, you know, setting an intention, what do you want out of the game? You know, what, what do you, how do you, how do you want to play? How do you want to play? Well, do you want to play casually? Do you want to play competitively? And uh, where, you know, a good, good instructor like yourself would always gear the student more toward answering those questions first before one can proceed. And it really does exemplify, uh, Jack, you know, anyway, um, so basically going back to what I was saying, it, it just really, it really boggles my mind and that good teachers such as yourself will always go back to, hey, you know, it's your job to teach people how to swing the club better. But also you talk about the mental part of it as really the whole thing. It just, it really boggles my mind, you know, in this world where, as you said, and as we discussed earlier, that every fault, any bad shot or anything goes back to, you know, especially if you're watching the PGA Tour telecast or you're watching the gals on the LPGA Tour, when somebody misses a shot, you got automatically, you go back to what they did wrong with the swing yeah. motion, you know, and, and I'd like to see a little further examination of, hey, maybe that player was in between clubs. Maybe that player didn't really like the shot, how it set up to her eye or his eye, or, you know, somebody could be struggling with a tight back, things like that. Just more of the intangibles that are being discussed that should be discussed, at least is what I'm trying to get at. But, um, you know, it just, I, I, I've gotten very, uh, I've been very fortunate in my life to to get to know a lot of really good instructors. And I keep telling my friends and family and people who want to play better, like, Hey, yeah, you want, you want to have a, a good swing motion, but that's, that's really a small part of it. And you're echoing this 
So you're edifying me, my friend. <laughs> as much as I'm edifying you and telling yeah, all of my sure. friends, you know, um, you know, Ron's one of the great, great teachers on on the planet. He's saying, hey, look, it's yeah, you want to have a good golf swing, but uh that's that's not gonna get you to golfing nirvana. It's a it's yeah. a piece, it's an important piece, but it's yeah. not gonna get you completely where you want to go. Yeah, I, I think I see my role in what I do as I'm trying to get um, beginning and average golfers and mid-level players to understand the skill set that better players have, which basically revolves around this clubhead skill that you that you feel through your hands. Um, and for better players, like like a Ricky Fowler, I would get them to enhance that, but more so help them understand how, how strong they have to be mentally to, you know, like recently I, I read something about Tiger where uh, he was texting with Jason Day and Jason was asking me, so Tiger, how do you get through where you don't have these mental lapses? And Tiger texted back and said, I've never had any lapses in concentration. So Tiger knows wow. just how important the, the, the um, mental side of things is and getting it so involved in your shot that, that basically you're in this little bubble and, and the shot you have at hand is the only thing that exists. That's why Tiger was Tiger, because not only was he hyper-talented, but he also had that ability to go, okay, it's time for me to hit my golf shot. The whole rest of the world goes away while I hit my golf shot. Yeah, yeah. And I want to quote a couple of things that Tiger said. Now, obviously, in the course of Tiger's career, he's had several coaches, and he's gone through three or four different swing changes from a mechanical standpoint. Yeah. But then in about 2018, he decided to go it alone. He doesn't have a swing coach now. And I want to read you a few things that I've picked up uh, on the internet here about Tiger. This is from a, uh, I think it's a golf magazine article from 2018. And it says this, one of the most interesting aspects of Tiger's revival is that he's going it alone without Butch Hartman or Hank Haney or Sean Foley. He's playing golf, not by track man or MacBook, but by hand, quoting Tiger. My hands are telling me what to do. That's how I grew up playing. And it's what I'm doing right now. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Now, here's uh, a quote from his uh, um, 2019 uh, Masters uh, press conference after he won. He says, quote, luckily, I had the procedure on my back, which gave me a chance at having a normal life. But then all of a sudden, I realized I could actually swing a golf club again. I felt if I could somehow piece this together that I still had the hands to do it. The body's not the same as it was a long time ago, but I still have good hands. Now, this, this is another quote from um, late summer golf season of 2019 from Golf Digest uh, series, uh, My Game Tiger Woods. And this is a video that I said, and I just basically paused it and transcribed what he said. He's hitting a shot in the range, and he says this, quote, I've always played a lot with my hands. I control a lot of my speed and what I do with my hand speed. I've never been one that really focuses on what my body is doing. So I'll interject here. So despite the fact wow. that he's worked with he's worked with uh, with different coaches on tweaking this little mechanical de- detail here, tweaking that little mechanical detail there, he's always been more focused on what am I feeling with my hands? What do I got to do? He says, continuing here, controlling trajectory and controlling shots. A lot of that has been my hands. Granted, my swing is morphed. I've done different things with different instructors. But at the end of the day, it's about, to me, making the little adjustments right before impact to try and figure out where the club is at and sensing where it's at. Because at the end of the day, the only connection we have with our golf club is our hands. 
we can just drop the mic on that. I mean, goodness gracious. Uh, that's from, you know, arguably the best ever. Yep. Right from the horse's mouth, literally. I, I remember I've, I've heard Tiger talk about the importance of his hands, you know, throughout his career. And uh, to me, that makes the most sense. Because if, if we're going to go back to ideally learning at the age of six, that's exactly how we're going to learn. You, yeah. you just, you don't have all of the, the requisite brain power at that time. So, you know, you know your, your, your unconscious is automatically going to kick in. Yeah. And so, Ron, I mean, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. So how can people get a hold of you? How can people reach you uh, for lessons and, and all of the goodness that you have? The best way is to come to uh, realswinggolf.com on my website. You can learn a little bit more about my teaching philosophy. Okay. And uh, it's got my contact information for email. And you can reach me at info at realswinggolf.com to reach me by email as well. And then uh, you, you do have some YouTube stuff up. Yeah, I've got a YouTube channel. It's called Learn the Real Swing. And uh, a lot of the videos are older. And I have some that are... Uh, I often talk a lot about hat golfers. This was back in the, I believe, the mid 2010s, okay. where TaylorMade had come up with an initiative because golf, um, recreational golf, was kind of struggling and the game was losing players and so on and so forth. So they came up with this name, Hat Golf, not as in you're a golf hacker, but we want to hack golf, like hacking into the computer code to figure out what can sure. we do to make golf better. So I often introduce these videos as hello hack golfers. That's what that's about. Um, and I think uh, probably one of my favorite videos that I did was what I called happy Gilmore call shots. And so what I did in that video is I had a student of mine uh, stand in the background and I would run and hit it like happy Gilmore. He had to call up the shot that I was supposed to hit as I was running to the ball. So I said, you can call it anything you want, hook, slice, fade, shank, whatever. <laughs> and he actually called a shank on me and I managed to hit it as well. Wow. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. How fun. That sounds like a blast, but uh, that's, that, go, ahead. That, go ahead. That to me is the thing that, that golf is missing Yeah. because golf is supposed to be fun. Now it can be less fun because of the fact that it's, you know, the, the, the criteria for getting that, what you want, that flush hit, that beautiful ball flight, as we discussed earlier, the criteria for that is ridiculous. Right? Yeah. 16th of an inch precise, perfectly squares, done 180 fast, almost as fast as you can blink. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so people need to understand that to develop that ability to develop that skill requires that focus on developing the club that skills that I teach, but it also requires time. Yeah. Lots of it and lots and uh, lots of practice. Yep. And so when you miss hit the ball a little bit and you start cursing yourself, you are probably three eighths of an inch from a perfect shot. So don't berate yourself. Right. Have fun with the entire learning process and including the so-called bad shots and mistakes because golf can be a ton of fun and you can gradually develop your skill set over time if you're, if you're focused on the right things. And thank God we've got people like yourself on this planet to help us learn and to focus on those right things and to have more fun. And uh, I'll, I'll leave the conversation by saying uh, golf is fun. It's meant to be fun. And it's a lot more fun when you go take a lesson or two from Ron and you get a little bit better because good golf is more fun. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Ron, thanks for coming on, pal. I really appreciate it.